Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven talk radio that promotes happiness from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights trendsetters and change agents who offer sound emotional fitness tips for improving mental muscle tone and greater well-being. Guest experts include a diverse and proactive collection of the greatest thinkers and doers who are devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology coach, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in the fields of sustainable happiness, mindfulness, and positive lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Welcome to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio, broadcasting consciously prepared brain food from the beaches of Malibu, California. Each week, we explore the very serious business of happiness, sustainable well-being, and human flourishing. We are not talking about that annoying yellow smiley face. No, no, no. We are talking about something much deeper and critical to the success of humanity. Authentic happiness is not selfish, egotistical, or narcissistic. In fact, it is essential in order for humankind to thrive. Sustainable happiness is important because it not only elevates our own well-being locally, but also contributes to collective global flourishing. The achievement of a happy life is not only positively good for us, it is constructively good for those around us. In short, happiness matters. Happiness comes from the heart. And this show is most definitely all about the heart. Well, spring has sprung and springtime is a period in the calendar where in many philosophical and religious traditions, we talk about spiritual cleansing, rebirth and renewal. But today's episode is about spiritual cleaning, rebirth, and renewal for skeptics as well as seekers. And my first guest today is Rabbi Sherry Hirsch. For over 20 years, Rabbi Hirsch has been sharing her intimate counsel and wisdom with people from start over. For over 20 years, Rabbi Sherry Hirsch has been sharing her intimate counsel and wisdom with people in all kinds of pulpits, ranging from her congregation at Sinai Temple in Los Angeles, California to the audience of the Today Show, to small Southern Baptist churches. I can't talk. She serves as the spiritual life consultant for Canyon Ranch Properties and is a highly sought-after inspirational speaker and teacher who routinely addresses congregations, corporations, women's groups, leadership organizations, and countless other audiences throughout the United States. Welcome back, Rabbi Hirsch. Thanks for joining us. I'm so happy to be here, Lisa. Nice to be back. Me too. Nice to have you back. And you came, you, the first time you were on the show, you came here talking about your book. And the book is Thresholds, How to Thrive Through Life's Transitions to Live Fearlessly and Regret-Free. But let's talk about spiritual cleansing and springtime, because this is such a ripe subject. I cannot believe when I was listening to your introduction how timely spring is for spring cleaning and how much spiritually we need it. We need to like dust off all that winter, snow, rain, everything that we've collected. And we do it, actually, the first thing we do in the spring is we clean our houses from top to bottom. That's what we do. It's the most amazing spiritual experience to have that sort of digging in. And then we celebrate a holiday called Passover as Jews, which is the most celebrated holiday because it celebrates 
something new, being a new person, having cleansed ourselves of all our past mistakes and disagreements and conflicts. So it's a perfect time to talk about spring cleaning and renewing ourselves. You wrote something very interesting, or at least it was most interesting to me about each day when we wake up, that we have the opportunity to express gratitude um, for life again, because sleep, in essence, is one sixtieth of death. Yes, it's the tradition that when you go to sleep, there's a small chance that you might die. And so every morning before you even open your eyes, you say words of gratitude. Thank you for restoring me to life, for giving me an opportunity to do it better, to do it differently. And I just heard a sweet story that everybody should take their slippers and stuff them under their bed where they can barely reach them. And so when they wake up in the morning, the first thing they have to do on the cold floor is get on their knees, search for their slippers, because it puts you in the perfect position to be in gratitude for the rest of your day. Oh, that is terrific. And that is really regardless of, of, of uh, practice, of spiritual practice. Exactly. I mean, everybody has a pair of slippers or at least has cold feet and needs a pair of slippers. Yeah. And the idea of doing that really can give you perspective and give you the opportunity to realize that each day is an opportunity to be better than you were the day before, that we're human beings in process and we don't have to have it all figured out. And when you talk about being a human in process, which I absolutely love, I think of going back to your example of Passover and Judaism, that not only is it about this rebirth and renewal process, it's about the release from those things that have enslaved us. Right. There's this sense, Lisa, that we are enslaved by a lot of things in our lives. And that word sounds so dramatic, like we're not slaves today, thank God. But we are slaved by technology. What's the first thing we do when we wake up in the morning? We look at the phone. What's the last thing we do before we go to bed at night? We look at the Facebook, right? We're slaves. And so to really release ourselves of that takes a conscious awareness that every day we are getting better. And just because we did it the day before and we feel regret or remorse or even we're not even aware that we feel regret or remorse yet gives us an opportunity to wake up anew. It's a very powerful thinking because it allows possibility as opposed to punishment. Yes. Oh, I love that, Sherry. Possibility instead of punishment. And I think if you look at positive psychology and what the research shows us about not only mindset but action and how action actually can change the mindset, what I hear you suggesting it is, you know, the act of um, showing up for life in, in a place of gratitude, in a place of mindfulness, is the key to our happiness. For sure. I think so much of happiness, technically or scientifically, what they've studied is that 40% of our happiness is genetically wired in. So some of us were born more happy than others. But about 50% of it we have the ability to choose. And I don't think it's that we have the ability to choose happiness. We have the ability to choose meaningful life experiences that therefore make us happy. The 10% is that there are things in our life, Lisa, that happen to us that inherently make us more unhappy. Losing a child, we fundamentally can change our level of happiness in the world. But 50% of us has the opportunity to say, 
huh, what meaningful experiences can I construct today? What perspective can I take? How can I approach my relationships so that I find meaning and from that derive real happiness? Yeah, I, I think this is really, really a good point because it's not that happy people have less adversity or bad things or trauma that happen to them. It's, it's how they deal with those things when they when they do happen. Well, I, I like to say that there's people that respond to life's difficulties and there's people that react to them. And people that react to them are far less happy because they're constantly in a fight. What's going to happen to me next? How am I going to react? What should I do? And people that respond look at it and say, well, this is a chapter in a large book called My Life. And I don't know how it ends, but I'm willing to go on and read the next chapter or look to the next page because I know there's something more. And that's really just a, a way that people approach life differently. Yeah. And when we talk about prayer and, and contemplation, because I think that, the, you know, the idea of, of praying is very, very different to each person. You know, some people will attend traditional religious services or use the Bible. There'll be others who will find that transcendent place from gardening or knitting. Yes, I think that prayer, that word has come to mean something very limited. People think, you have to pray in a church or a synagogue and you have to say certain words. I don't think that's prayer at all. Prayer is when we connect to something greater than ourselves. And like you said, people do it through knitting. They do it through yoga. They through listening to music, just sitting by the ocean. And I don't even think it necessarily has to involve words. In fact, when people pray in a language they don't understand, I'm even concerned that that's not prayer because how would you have a relationship with someone in which you didn't speak the same language or which you didn't even have an ability to understand one another. So prayer is really that desire to connect with something greater so that you can have a more intimate experience with anyone, whether that's a person, a higher power, uh, a meaningful experience. I think you make a very good point that, you know, in many uh, religious traditions that the prayer is said in a foreign language. In Judaism, it's said in Hebrew, and most of us do not um, read or speak Hebrew. So the concept of if if that prayer is meant to be a vehicle that connects us with God or the divine or our higher power, if we can't read it or understand it, is it is it effective? Well, what most people don't know, especially in the Jewish community, but also outside of the Jewish community, is that in Judaism, you're not allowed to pray in a language you don't understand, which I think is hilarious because people think if I say the words in Hebrew, even if I don't know what they mean, I must be praying. When in fact, <laughs> it's the opposite. And, and the I'm going to get brownie points for that, you know? <laughs> right. Who cares? You know, I like to believe that when we pray, we speak to God or whatever you call that higher power. But when we study or when we engage in yoga or when we meditate, that's when that power speaks to us. Yes. Yes. And I have a fantastic example of that. My son is a surfer and he and I were having a conversation about religion one day and he's not particularly, he's not religious, not particularly, he's just plain old, not religious. And he says, you know, when I'm out on the water on my surfboard, I feel I'm as, as close to God as I can possibly be. That's enough. I, I love that you said that because my son, who's autistic, as you know, my most spiritual moment in my entire life was the two of us out on surfboards learning to surf. 
and surrounded by all these surfers in this beautiful sun, both not knowing what to do. And (laughs) I can't think of a more powerful moment in my life. Right. And that's presence. And I think maybe when we talk about um, reframing our relationship with the divine to be able to capture these pleasant moments, or, or present and pleasant, of course, moments in in ritual, that maybe that's what we're talking about, or we and need I, to be talking about. And I about. think they happen so frequently, Lisa, but I don't think we identify them as such or recognize them as such. We just say, oh, that just happened, right? We don't think of it. God, that was a powerful moment that connected me in ways that I've never felt. And like your son said, when I'm out in that water, I feel something other that I don't feel in my regular life while going to school or carpool or going to the market or doing all the things parents make kids do. Yeah. You know, I think that that's really true. We're going to go to a break. And when we return, I want to carry on this conversation and really talk about using ritual in our daily lives. And since we're talking about water, we probably should talk more about about the cleanse and ways that we can incorporate that spiritual cleanse. Perhaps we don't live near near the ocean, but there are lots of other ways that we can. We're going to take a break. To learn more about Rabbi Sherry Hirsch and her amazing work, please visit SherryHirsch.com. And on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook, Sherry, what are the handles? Sherry Hirsch. Very ah, easy. Very easy. It easy. Yep. You can find Sherry Hirsch connecting everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> Very easy. If you go to my website, it's the easiest. Just But the spelling is S-H-E-R-R-E-H-I-R-S-C-H. That's where everybody gets confused. We're going to go to a short break. But before we do, I want to talk with you about my happy feet. Yep, that's right. I am now wearing Bombas, the most comfortable premium socks on the planet. I have become a Bombas sock evangelist. Let me explain why. A few years ago, two cool guys quit their day jobs at a media company to make a difference in the world with socks. They learned that socks are the most requested items at homeless shelters. And at the same time, they realized there was a gap in the market for a more thoughtfully crafted sock. So these guys spent a couple of years on R&D, putting serious thought and intention into every single engineering detail to build a better performing sock. And ta-da, Bombas was born. Not only are they great quality socks, but Bombas is also on a mission to be better in helping to make the world a better place. For each pair of socks purchased, Bombas also donates a pair of socks to those in need. And that translates to more than 2 million pairs of socks given away so far. So if you need new socks, hop on over to bombas.com slash happiness because everyone deserves comfortable feet. Listeners of Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio will get an exclusive 20% discount off your first order, plus a money-back guarantee that Bombas are the best-performing socks in the history of feet. Again, that's bombas.com slash happiness. You can't go wrong, and your feet will thank you. Here come the tunes. We'll be right back. We know that life can be tough, and that happiness can and does live alongside adversity. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. We'll be right back after this quick break. Happiness is an inside job. Wear the message on t-shirts, baseball caps, sterling silver designer jewelry, and more. Please visit our online boutique at www.harvestinghappiness.com.
Are you or do you know a returning U.S. military man or woman in need of restoring joy in their lives? Did you know that our nonprofit, Harvesting Happiness for Heroes, offers stigma-free combat trauma and post-deployment reintegration programming? Check us out at www.hh4heroes.org. That's HH, the number four, and heroes.org. Nothing gives happiness like a free gift. Lisa Cypress Cayman has made her first ebook, Got Happiness Now? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life. Available at no cost to everyone. Unwrap your complimentary copy now by visiting www.harvestinghappinesstalkradio.com. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life. And at times, we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, we are talking about spiritual cleansing, rebirth, and renewal for skeptics and seeker with Rabbi Sherry Hirsch, who is a friend of mine. And I always love having you on the show, Sherry, because like we have good juju together. And we are talking about the ways that we can incorporate ritual into our lives. We're talking about being with our sons and our sons being in the water as being such a spiritual place for them. And what is the meaning of water and cleansing and how can, even if we don't live near the ocean, we make these rituals for ourselves? So for 5,000 years, Lisa, water has been the tool that all faiths have used to cleanse themselves. And in Judaism, we have a mikvah, which is a ritual bath that you can go to every day, but most women go once a month, and they literally purify themselves. They they leave, as they say, they leave everything they don't want in the mikvah. So before you get married, when you convert to Judaism, but I think there's a mikvah for everyone. You don't have to go to a Jewish mikvah or be Jewish nonetheless. I think this idea of immersing yourself and coming in and out of the water and letting yourself really leave in the water that which you don't want can happen anywhere, whether it's a pool, a bath, I would even say your shower, but the ocean to really let go and to leave it in the water and somehow the water can wash it away. Yeah. You know, and I'm thinking of in Islam, for example, that um, the, the devoted will wash their feet before they go to pray, you know, as if to wash off the, um, the, the earthliness, you know, and come into this sacred space. Well, and, and also with babies, with girl babies, because they don't go through circumcision, we often wash their feet as a sign of elevating them from sort of being, you know, a regular baby to being something holy, and so we wash their feet to welcome them into the Jewish people. Oh wow! I, you know, okay. I didn't. I didn't know that. That that is beautiful, and and that uh, uh, really begs the conversation of creating holiness, not just through the rituals of water, but creating the holy and the sacred in our daily lives. And I know that most of us are so busy, we don't we don't think about holy. We're just thinking about getting through the day whole. It's so true, and I think. What's overwhelming for people is this idea that how am I going to elevate my life? How am I going to 
figure that into my schedule? How can I go work at a homeless shelter? And what I tell people is if you can devote one minute a day to elevating yourself to holiness. And the way I say it is when you're in a gym class and everybody takes out weights, rather than just take and put away your weights, put away the person's weights next to you and the one on the other side of you. That will elevate you. Don't expect a thank you. Don't do it because you want to thank you, but because it you want to elevate your essence in the world. Same thing, I carry around bags of food for one day for a homeless person along with a message of hope and blessing with a napkin, with a toothbrush, and a whole day of food. And every time we encounter someone who doesn't have a home, we take out a bag and we give it to them. And I can't tell you the difference of giving a bag without a message versus giving a bag with a blessing. So many people have said to me, thank you for taking the time to write a note. And I have to tell you, it took all of 15 seconds. So go for the minute a day transformation, not the, I got to figure out how to live a more spiritual life. It's very easy if you put it into your regular practice. Well, I think you just gave us the key. It's the one minute spirituality. You know, when you're doing something of selfless service, it's altruistic. You're not expecting anything in return. There is no attachment to the outcome. I think that's another part of the equation that you're just being of service. You know, it's funny you talk about um, giving food with a note to a homeless man. The other day I was in Malibu leaving one of the places where I consult and uh, an older homeless guy came up to me and asked me if I would give him some money. And I said, of course I'll give you some money. And I gave him some money and then he asked if he could hug me. It was really quite exquisite. And I said, of course, I would, I would love to hug you. And he held on to me so tight. And he says, you don't know how long it's been just to be touched and by another person. And what a gift we give people. We think we're giving, but how much we're getting from that experience. That is a moment of holiness. It was, I, I felt that I walked away. I was in tears. He was in tears. And it wasn't, you know, the, you know, the last time he'd been given money, because I think he's probably pretty good at getting the money. <laughs> but it was the, it was the hug, the contact, the connection. And talking about, we, we actually talked about the secret sauce that love is, love is the medicine. Mm-hmm. And also just to be seen and acknowledged, to actually see someone in the world is such a gift. I often, walk into an elevator, and I call it the Chai theory, which in Judaism, C-H-A-I means life. But I play on the words Chai and Chai. And I walk in and I say hello to everyone in the elevator. And people always look at me like I'm lost it because they're like, do we know you? Are we supposed to know you? But sometimes that's the only acknowledgement someone will have during a day. And if I can bring that without an expectation, but to see them and to acknowledge them, it's a tremendous gift for myself as well as for them. And that is holy. And I'm here to say, because I met you, Sherry Hirsch, in an elevator 20 years ago, yes. that you're telling the truth. <laughs> <laughs> I completely forgot about that. That is how we met. And that, it's so that, funny. I've met so many people that way. And I've had a lot of strange <laughs> looks. But that's so funny that life comes full circle, that I would tell that story. And that's how we actually met. That is how we met. And we forged a friendship from your, it was your willingness to say hello. And your willingness to respond as well. Well, that's true. Yes, that's true. Not everybody responds. Some people look at me like I've lost it, but I'm okay with that sort of quizzical look because more often than not, people are really grateful. They are. And talking about losing it, we've had kids and lots of them between us. So we definitely have lost it a little bit. 
Yes, for sure. <laughs> we have a lot of I think there's six of us, six of them between us. Yeah, a lot of kids. Yeah. A lot of kids. We are lucky, lucky crickets. So back to rituals and the holy in everyday life. You know, you talk about prayer in, in, in Judaism, um, in, in, in very orthodox traditions, people will pray multiple times a day. In Islam, people will p- pray multiple times a day. In, in Catholicism, people will pr- pray multiple times a day. What's the gig? So what people often don't know that prayer was a replacement for sacrifice. So traditionally, five, you know, 2,500 years ago, people would bring their best fruit, their best animals, their best everything and offer it on the temple as a way to purify themselves, as a way to be grateful, as a way to find happiness. And once that temple ceased to exist and once that sacrifices were banned, prayer became the way that we access those same emotions and feelings. So people will pray three times a day. But what I tell people is I pray for a parking space yeah. <laughs> all the time, every time. <laughs> yes, because I, I do. Yes, because I live in LA and I find, and people are going to be like, this is insane. But if I pray for a parking space or pray for, to know where is the best place, even if that means letting someone else go into the space, if we're vying for the same space, that that is an act of prayer and an act of elevating my life and others into holiness. That is so funny. You talk about prayer and parking spaces because I am known in, in my family as the parking goddess. Like I just, I put the vibe out there when I'm about to drive up and we have two, two classifications of parking spaces. One is a Doris day. So Doris day in the movies, she'd drive up in her little uh, Corvette convertible with her hair in a, in a scarf. Do you remember that? Yes, I totally remember that. Okay. So that's primo. That's like the number one spot. And then a Roy Rogers is like second, you know, it's pretty good. It's like kind of off to the side because Roy Rogers would, um, hitch up his horse kind of off to the side of the, of the, of the saloon. Wow. I think we're going to have to use that in our family. Yeah. Doris Day or Roy Rogers. Exactly. My family family laughs because I'll say, everyone, pray for a parking space. And then something happens and one opens up and the kids will look at me and be like, really? Really? Because it's just, I have teenagers and they look at you like you're crazy all the time. So. Yeah. But by now they know your power. Well, by now they know at least that if I want God on my side, they better err on the side of caution. (laughs) (laughs) That that is really, really funny. All right, back to everyday ritual and holiness. Give us one more example, because we're almost out of time. So we only have time for one more before Karina's going to, like, shut us off. (laughs) Well, the obvious is always filling someone's meter. And I tend to try and do it every day, not because I'm such a holy or magnanimous person. But for 25 cents, you can really prevent another person from having a really difficult day. And so take your quarters, keep them in a purse in your, keep them in a little coin purse in your purse and just drop them in when you drop your own quarters in on the one to the front and the one behind you. Jewish people who speak Yiddish, there's a beautiful word for this. It's called mitzvah. Mm-hmm. Right? Mitzvah is actually a Hebrew word. Yiddish was German and Hebrew conflated, but mitzvah means to do good deed to do righteousness in the world. And you do it not because of the reward, but because you want to make the world more fair, more equal, and more balanced. And that's why we do it. 
And we're talking about meter money as being a mitzvah. I mean, for 25 cents, you can save somebody a $35 ticket. I think that's a pretty good ROI on life. Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) I think no financial consultant would tell you that's a bad bet. Yeah, exactly. Sherry, as always, thank you for joining us. To learn more about Rabbi Sherry Hirsch, please visit www.sherryhirsch.com. You can find her at the same name on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And the book that we have been talking about, which is a terrific book, is Thresholds, How to Thrive Through Life's Transitions and to Love Fearlessly and Regret-Free. And isn't that isn't that the thing, Sherry? You know, most people at the end of their lives don't regret the things that they've done. They regret the things that they haven't. Absolutely. And I've been with a lot of people at the end of their lives, and I want to help them make that transition, not at the last moment when they take their final breaths, but today when they hopefully have a long life ahead of them. Yeah, and that is the happiness challenge, right? That is it, right that there. Is it. Thank you, my friend. As always, uh, a great pleasure. Thank you. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Lisa. Here come the tunes. We will be right back, and that is a promise. Nothing gives happiness like a free gift. Unwrap your present by signing up for Happiness Headlines, our monthly e-zine at harvestinghappiness.com. Stay tuned for more after the break. Nothing gives happiness like a free gift. Lisa Cypress came and has made her first ebook, Got Happiness Now? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life. Available at no cost to everyone. Unwrap your complimentary copy now by visiting www.harvestinghappinesstalkradio.com. Like what you hear on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio? Subscribe to us on iTunes and get your weekly dose of joy downloaded free and easily to your computer or portable device. That's Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio on iTunes. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life. And at times we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, I urge you to download and share this podcast because it's kind, it's free, it's legal, it's available 24-7, and we are talking about the springtime, um, rebirth, renewal, transformation, and reconnection. And my next guest has a fresh take on faith. The, and I'm talking with my friend and author, Dave Schmelzer, and his new book, Blue Ocean Faith, the vibrant connection to Jesus that opens up insanely great possibilities, secularizing a world, and might kick off a new Jesus movement. That is a mouthful, and I'm, and I'm so glad that I got it off without too much of a hitch. But let me tell you a little bit about Dave. Dave Schmelzer is the executive director of Blue Ocean Faith, an innovative network of churches throughout the country that are looking to thrive in very non-church-going settings. Earlier, he served for 15 years as the founding pastor of what is now Reservoir Church in Cambridge, Massachusetts. He's spoken at many universities such as Harvard, MIT, Tufts, USC, and Stanford, and at churches throughout the U.S. and Europe. Dave is the author of Not the Religious Type, 
Confessions of a Turncoat Atheist. He has a background in both theology from Fuller Seminary and the arts from Stanford and a decade of working as a playwright. And Dave lives in Southern California with his beautiful family, including five kids, ladies and gentlemen, five. Hi, Dave. Thanks for joining me. Hi, Lisa. Quite a mouthful to get everything out, not least the subtitle of the book. So congratulations. No, the subtitle of the book is it, it, it is a mouthful. And I just think having five children automatically makes you a saint. But that's that's a sidebar conversation. That explains the saintliness I uh, I experience day by day. Yeah, and no doubt you do. Let's talk about this new book because I I think this is pretty cool. You know, as a as a Jewish woman, sort of approaching um, the new Jesus movement here with some curiosity. Talk about that. So in my religious world, there have been these awakenings throughout American history, throughout kind of European and world history, of which the most recent was this thing that got called the Jesus Movement in the late 60s into probably the mid-70s. And it was all these hippies who suddenly started having spiritual awakenings, which were largely, at least in my circle around Jesus, but not exclusively. So like all sorts of other things, science of mind probably came out of that and various, you know, kind of spiritual awakenings. And in the in the kind of church world, that all began to fade by about the end of the 70s and is now sort of a a vestige. And what's happened since is that people have more kind of locked into orthodoxy, what's true, what's false, who are the good people, who are the bad people, often with good results because you're in a community that feels safe and bounded, that it feels comfortable to be in, but certainly with some bad qualities. Even our political world right now is, I think, a reflection of that, where we've got people say, I know my orthodoxy, it's not the same as your orthodoxy, I know who the bad guy is. And so in, in the network of churches I'm a part of, we think about that a lot because the, chur- the churches that we work with are almost all in places that are kind of blue states or are non-church-going places. And I think we feel like the, the sort of bounded, we have our orthodoxy, you have our, your orthodoxy, we're either going to persuade you or fight you world is just not helpful. And so the, I think just the uh, inspiration of what in our world would be the Jesus movement, but the spiritual awakening that happened in the late 60s into the 70s where people felt – not divorced from one another and disconnected, but felt very connected to each other and to the world at large and to spirituality, in my world, to Jesus, to God. It was such a, it kind of had a very happy feeling to it until it began to kind of harden into an orthodoxy when it became a little angrier and surlier. So I just think we dream for that happiness. We dream for that sense of connection. We dream for that sense of connection to ourselves, to God and to other people. And we're trying to do our best to see if we can stir one up. Oh, I I think it's stir it up and also cross the divide. And what I love about what you just said about this new Jesus movement is it's really uh, an invitation into spiritual um, inquiry. Absolutely. And yeah, spiritual inquiry, spiritual experimentation, uh, conversation to try to learn what other people know that you might not know. It's it's an opening up of possibilities, I think, uh, rather than a kind of retrenching. And I think you also talk about the, the political climate and the um, the orthodoxy and the positionality of people. I mean, we are we are a nation that um, is deeply in need of making America happy again. Forget great, like happy. And how do you do happy? You do happy um, very differently than than greatness, perhaps. You're the woman for the job, Lisa. This is this is what we need. I need hats. Make America happy again. We're on it. Like, yeah, <laughs> to your uh, your uh, show, and we're good. Yeah, yeah. no, I, I think that's absolutely right. I think right now we're kind of a surly bunch, right, nationwide, and I just think that that can't hold. Helpfully, both sides are surly. You absolutely. know, and, you know, like no no one's really getting what they want. 
So um, that's making them unhappy. But the, the good news is that because we have the ability to be self-determined, to have self-mastery, to find a um, a place to have the meeting of hearts and minds, that's done at the individual level. And if everybody gets busy doing that, boy, you have a changed country. Yeah, I think it's at the individual level and it's at the group level because the individual has to happen, right? If we're stressed, miserable, scared, um, you know, all the, the list of negative adjectives personally, then one, we're not going to be very helpful to the country. We're not going to be very helpful to ourselves, but we're also not going to be able to connect very well, right? We, we need a sense of inner overflow to be able to start learning from other people, inviting other people into our journey and receiving their journey and just kind of there needs to be more than just stressness and miserableness, and that does start individually for sure. Let's talk about blessedness. Sure. Because this is, a, this is such a beautiful word. I don't think that uh, uh, the average person recognizes his or her blessedness, myself included. You know, I mean, I, I, sometimes I bypass it. I'm not paying attention. Yeah, Totally. And so by blessedness, I presume what you mean is just that there's more going right in your life than you pay attention to. Is that what you mean? Yes. And then I, I mean, that's on a, on a micro level, right? When it's all about me, myself and I, but also the blessedness that, that surrounds us. Meaning that there's a, some transcendent force out there out to do us good. Is that the blessedness you're talking yes. about? Yes. Um, you, you could put it that way. I mean, I, um, that's one way of looking at it, that, that, that there is a force of good, that there is uh, something or someone in charge that is looking out for what's going on. But I just also think about what we have uh, as Americans and in much of the world, the, we are blessed. There are parts of the world that are not, that are not as blessed. Right, totally. And that's, you know, so things that are, tr- that transcend religious traditions like practicing gratitude or praise or whatever the tradition would say as a way into that is so central that in both the Jewish and Christian and I suppose Muslim traditions, if you look at the Psalms, they start like a, a quarter of the Psalms have in them a commandment to our own souls to praise God. Like, soul, you better praise God. You know, yeah. why is that there? I think it's for what you're saying that, that we forget that. And we need the reminder to uh, to say, you know, things. There's good stuff going on. Let's talk about um, what some people perceive is irresponsible or selfish, and that being focusing on uh, our individual. I'm going to say well-being, not happiness, because I think that happiness is the byproduct of uh, a life well lived and well served. Yeah. Well, right, and so in uh, in my world. I think there's a there's a discontent in the current political climate. Uh, that would not be true in many of the parts of the world, but in my world, almost <laughs> universally, there is discontent, and so I think that comes up because our our network is focused so much on what it means to find joy and to find a kind of an overflow of joy in our lives, and it feels like that's whistling while Rome burns. You know, there's a there's trouble in the world. We can't focus on that. We've got to focus on problem solving and on standing up for people who need standing up for. And again, I recognize that would not be everyone's perspective, but it's widely shared in my circle. And so I do think we face that tension of, okay, what's legitimate to say? Because the religious traditions all throughout all of them have focused a great, to a great extent on what does it look like to have a life that's rich and full. And I don't know if we can trash that now, even if we are feeling agitated uh, in the larger world. And I think if we don't trash that, we're going to find we have more resources to do the good that we think we need to do. But it's a tension. And, and you know, what's interesting um, is that 
studies have been done on people who are spiritual or have some form of a religious practice, and they are self-reporting higher uh, subjective well-being levels than their non-practicing or non-believing counterparts. So there, there is some there is some data on this, right? And it seems like how even if we're um, if we feel a, a call to something bigger than our own personal well-being. It certainly can't hurt to have our personal well-being, right? I mean, and so I think you're right. I think pursuing, I do think it's, it's data driven. And certainly my experience would say pursuing a spiritual life beyond ourselves and looking to see how it can benefit us is such a positive thing to do. And, you know, for people who are naysayers or skeptics, you know, if, if, if God, the word God or Jesus or the divine, whatever it is, if it bothers you, Take the word out of the equation, substitute your own word in there that brings you closer to connection. I think that's exactly the right way to think about it. What is it that will connect you to yourself, to the world around you? And even if something, you know, when I use the word transcendent, I, I'm sort of stuck on that, that even if transcendent, if, if you don't believe in a God or anything out there, transcendent might be off-putting. But I think, but even if you don't believe in a God, is there just something bigger? I don't know even quite how to name it, but I feel like that desire to connect with something larger and to yourself and to others is such a positive step. Transcendence is um, a perfect word. We're going to need to go to a break. And when we come back, I'd love to pick up and talk more about transcendence and mysticism, because you talk about this in your writings. And I think there's there's a corollary to learn more about Dave Schmelzer and his new book, Blue Ocean Faith, the vibrant connection to Jesus that opens up insanely great possibilities in a secularizing world and might kick off a new Jesus movement. To learn more about him and his work, please go to blueoceanla.org. And on Facebook, the page is Dave.Schmelzer. Here comes the tunes. We'll be right back. Who says money can't buy happiness? Check out Lisa's new book, Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life and other fun, fashionable, and inspiring items at shophappy at harvestinghappiness.com. We'll be right back after this quick break. Are you or do you know a returning U.S. military man or woman in need of restoring joy in their lives? Did you know that our nonprofit, Harvesting Happiness for Heroes, offers stigma-free combat trauma and post-deployment reintegration programming? Check us out at www.hh4heroes.org. That's HH, the number four, and heroes.org. Like what you hear on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio? Subscribe to us on iTunes and get your weekly dose of joy downloaded free and easily to your computer or portable device. That's Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio on iTunes. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life. And at times we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, we are talking about a fresh take on faith with Dave Schmelzer of Blue Ocean Faith. Dave, you've got a correction to the social media outreach. Tell us where we can find you. Probably the, the Blue Ocean LA uh, that you just mentioned is actually a small new Blue Ocean church we're starting here in LA. So if you're in LA and you are looking to say, hey, let's check out this Blue Ocean church thing, that would be an excellent place to go, blueoceanla.org. 
For just larger Blue Ocean stuff, you would either go to blueoceanfaith.org, which is the national website. I have a podcast that you can find on iTunes called Blue Ocean World. It's weekly. It kind of talks about whatever is on our mind or in the world in terms of the meaning of life uh, with some friends from around the country. So that would be another great place to find me. And on Facebook, Blue Ocean Faith would also be a great place to look. Well, there you have it. We've got we've got the new the new data, and I appreciate that. Let's get back to the conversation about transcendence because I think this is one of those exquisite words that when you think of your own personal transcendent moment, usually we describe that with rapture. I mean, there's some really juicy words that describe transcendence, right? Right. Sure. Well, I think even talking about mysticism, what I found is the enemy of mysticism is not um, atheism or or not believing in God. The enemy of mysticism is actually an overemphasis on being right, on kind of orthodoxy. I think I found in religious settings that transcendence and mysticism are often very threatening things to talk about with religious people, which you think, why would it be threatening to them? They believe in this stuff. I think it's threatening because it feels like I just want to feel right. I want to feel like I know the truth and somebody else doesn't. And I think that that goes across the board. That's not a religious, non-religious thing. I think that's a human thing. And so somehow it just seems to me in talking about transcendence or the mystical, there's an opportunity for everybody that it's not about belief. It's just about saying, I don't need to feel justified at this moment. I don't need to feel right. I can just ask myself, what is beyond me? I just think that's there's a long history in all spiritual traditions and in non-spiritual traditions of that being a very helpful thing to do. And you, I think you, you bring up a really good point. Do you want to be right or do you want to be happy? Most of us, most, will say we want to be happy over being right. And then there are a few that will that, that right is happy to them. I think that's right. I was in a conversation just last week about uh, with a friend of mine who's a, in the same religious tradition as I was, and we were having a wonderful, great give-and-take conversation about deep things, and he had some things that suggested to me that I've never thought about in my life, and I wasn't sure if I agreed with them or not. And one th- thing I said back to him was, you know, in the end, you got to re- realize as I talk about this, I don't need to be right in these opinions. I think I'm actually not even – my endeavor is not to be right. My endeavor is to be alive. <laughs> yeah, right? To be alive. And when you are truly alive, it, your position really doesn't matter. When you're, when you're in it, when you're in the flow of life, truly feeling alive, um, right doesn't matter. Yeah. And I mean, I don't know if I can throw a question back to you, but what have you found in all your extensive interviewing of people and your own exploration? It seems to me that the endeavor of exploring, the endeavor of thinking, is there more going on out there? How can I connect to it? How can I help others do it? That that endeavor is a spiritual experience intrinsically. Does that seem true to you? Does that seem true to your guests over the years? 500%. We've been doing this show for seven years and, and I still refer to it as what I get to do. You know, like a giddy kid that gets to go to the candy store because I'm, I'm constantly in that state of curiosity and wonder and delight and, and play. It is very much creative play and, and very much feels like home. So for me, yeah, this is bliss. This is transcendent. Well, there you go. So I think <laughs> exactly that, albeit from a tradition, but nonetheless, it's that same endeavor. Exactly. But let's talk about the mysticism and the connection with the numinous. Because, you know, the numin, that word is not brought up in common conversation very often. And yet I think that is what you are suggesting that we tap into. Yeah, I'm not sure. I may have mentioned on the last show we did together, my own experience, I came out of atheism and I was sort of a little novice atheist debater. And I just... <laughs> I mean, I was novice, meaning I was atheist debater as a 17 through 20 year old. So it's not like I was this big pro, but I would, I would pick fights with anybody and I would argue atheism with all my religious friends. And there just came a point 
when my own life got so discouraging that I, I, I thought back to all these debates I'd had and I felt like because I'm a cocky guy, I felt like I'd won all of them and yet winning wasn't giving me much comfort. And so I actually just started like trying to connect and I, I found myself like saying literally things like, hey, universe, how's it going? <laughs> and if it's God I'm supposed to be talking to, hey, God, what's up? How do I connect with you? And I literally just started saying, is there a, is there sort of a, in a strange way, a conversation to be had with the numinous? And that was, a, that was the transforming experience of my life to this day. Nothing has changed my life more than, than that endeavor because it just struck me that I started getting kind of hints back quickly that there was more going on, which encouraged me to try to figure out more how to pursue that. I did like two years of comparative religion study to figure out how do other traditions do that? How do the Sufi uh, Muslims do that? How do uh, – I took a course on modern-day Judaism. I got to know my professor quite well. How do they do that? I looked up – my sister was a Taoist. How do Taoists do that? And she was at the time. She was no longer, but she was then. And so it just seems like that sort of con- – that opening of a conversation was just so transforming to me, and I think that's all about the numinous. Agreed. And, you know, you talk about in your book, you talk about these polarizing times and what it could look like to carve out a communal space for people from very different backgrounds to find faith and life together. Yeah. Talk, talk, share more about that. Well, it sort of goes back to this uh, idea of talking about about settling into being eager to establish our orthodoxy. I think when that's our first endeavor, it's not that there's no truth out there or that orthodoxy is not real or that we don't need to come to a kind of our own personal satisfaction of what seems true to us and live by it. I believe in all of that. But whatever that is, when that orthodoxy becomes something that we defend, that that's the thing that's important is that set of facts – I think it separates us. I think it actually separates us from ourselves and from God, not just from other people. I think the bigger endeavor is this thing I've called centered set. It's almost like if the orthodoxy is like a circle on a page and you're either inside that circle or outside it, the center, the centered set idea would be there's a big dot on the page, which would be the thing that holds the set together. And all the other little dots on the page are either moving towards it or moving away from it. So the issue there is motion, not being in or out of this thing. And somehow it seems to me if we can agree on what the center is, what are we shooting for? Then there's no in or out anymore. Then we can actually all help each other move that direction. And so, you know, in, in religious circles or in my church circles, the center might be the living God or the living Jesus. In larger circles, it might just be the good life, how to help one another. But whatever it is, I think we need to find a common conversation and then cheer everybody on to be moving towards it. Because at least in my religious circles, there are still groups of people that I think my, my orthodox friends would say, I'm not on a journey with them. They need to become different. When they repent, when they become different people, then we're on the same journey. And that has not proven helpful to me. No, and I think this is where religion has failed many people. Absolutely. You know, that, that, that the orthodoxy has actually defeated the purpose of religion to begin with, which is to enjoin people, to to make them feel that they are a part of. And all religious traditions, if you look at every single one of them, they're all in the same business, which is to elicit happiness amongst amongst the believers. Happiness and kind of a I – I might even argue it's beyond – it is happiness. And it's also like a, a better world, you know, to create a world which is better than we found it. Um, yes, yes. But – yes, but and and that the, yep. the pathway to doing that is through rolling up our sleeves and becoming involved and connected. It's not – it just doesn't fall in our lap. Right, because it can't just be an ethical system, right? Because which of us has the time or the resources to make a better world really – we kind of need resources to come from some other source to give us some sense of overflow so we have something to contribute along the way. And I think other people and the numinous and all that sort of stuff is pretty pretty helpful in that endeavor. 
you know, let's talk about the, the concept of fact-checking God, because really what you're, what you're talking about in all these traditions is if you don't do it my way, that you're not an insider. And I don't know that there is one supreme fact-checker out there who has really got this down, because we don't really know it, because it's a system of belief. Yeah, and in one sense, I don't, I actually have no, uh, disagreement with anybody in my own or any other tradition that says, I think I found the truth. Now that can sound like a dangerous statement, right? Because it means I found it, which anybody who doesn't agree with me hasn't. That sounds dangerous. But I have no problem with that statement because I think, well, amen. But what is the truth? It's to me, the bigger issue is more, what is the truth doing for you? If in my own tradition or any religious tradition or any non-religious tradition, having found the truth is making you less happy, more disconnected, more angry, more combative, then it seems like it's sort of what the truth has done to you, which is the problem. It's not so much that you think you found it. If it's a joyous truth, then share away, live it. And even if uh, the person next to you says, I don't think I found that same truth, but I have another truth, which has helped me. Can we talk? Is there any way we can work together? I think we're on a great path. Yes. And the talking, that that discourse where you really have a conversation with people and you're curious about what – I'm curious about what everybody believes because – that's how I have knowledge and that's how I get happier when I know what you believe and why you believe it. I'm interested. I want to know. Yeah, my experience precisely, exactly. And I think that's where this, you know, again, it's my, maybe my own silly distinction, but this whole centered set thing helps me so much because in the centered set idea, if even if the center of my set is God and the center of someone else's set isn't, if it's all about moving that way or not, anybody can help me move towards God. They don't have to agree with my, my premises. Uh, finding out what is kind of how has God spoken to them, whatever, whatever their belief about God is, what's, what's the truth they found that's so useful, I can then take that myself. So yeah. in Centered Set, we can all help each other. I love this Centered Set. And this is in the new book? A fresh it's take. A big part of the new book, yes. Okay, cool. So I just we, we are out of time, so I want to give a plug for the new book once again. The author is Dave Schmelzer, and the book is Blue Ocean Faith: The Vibrant Connection to Jesus That Opens Up Insanely Great Possibilities in a Secularizing World and Might Just Kick Off or and Might Kick Off a New Jesus Movement. Dave, give the social media connections one more time. You can find us at Blue Ocean Faith is the easiest thing to do on Facebook. That's our main social media page. Wonderful. And here are a few thoughts before we part. Happiness is not a destination. It cannot be bought, sold, or traded. Happiness will never invite you to the party. It simply comes down to a choice to show up each and every day in the world with passion, purpose, place, and meaning. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen and my guest today, Rabbi Sherry Hirsch and Dave Schmelzer, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Go out and rock your day. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio with Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Join us each and every Wednesday for a brand new episode of Consciously Curated Talk Radio from the Heart. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime from the comfort of wherever you are with hundreds of free downloadable podcasts from our libraries on Toginet, iTunes, and SoundCloud. In a complicated world seemingly driven by nonstop negative news, Lisa's mission is to celebrate the upside of life and seek the silver lining of our challenges by transforming them into uplifting growth opportunities for all. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit HarvestingHappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. 
Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio is produced in collaboration with Toginet Radio, KBUU, RadioMalibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.